Hey everyone, I am Reva and just want to take a moment and thank you for listening to our studio podcast. Although we are here in Greenville, South Carolina, we are grateful for your support to see the message of Jesus go out all over the world. In case you are not aware, we have a YouTube channel, which you can find the link in our podcast bio. We hope you enjoy this week's talk and it encourages you and it helps you to be the human God designed you to be. So with that, let's get right to it. You know, humans are pioneers. We are explorers. We are mavericks. We are iconoclast. We're forerunners. We are early adopters, and some of us are really late adopters. We create and we destroy. We imagine and we also dream. We love and we hate. We build and we also inspire. We set sail for lands that we don't even know actually exist. We traverse all terrains known to man just to find something new. We scale mountains for a dopamine hit. We build things that last, and we also build things that topple in a storm. We put ourselves in metal tubes with jet engines and cross time zones at 40,000 feet in the air. And somewhere along the way, we decide to call a place a home a place to settle. We build a place to dwell, and then before you know it, others do the same. We build places to store things. We build places to sell things. We build places to worship, also to educate the young. As this progresses, villages are formed, townships pop up, and cities are born. I'm always curious about cities and towns and villages, why they decided that spot. It's always interesting me. I don't know if you've ever traveled across the country, but Denver makes sense to me. Like Denver makes a lot of sense why they chose Denver. Because they were on their wagon train traveling across the Midwest. Everything is relatively flat. And they got to this space and they saw the Rocky Mountains. And they thought, you know what? I think this is gonna work right here. So some cities make sense to me why there, but I don't know if you've ever been in Kansas. Now, if you're from Kansas, I'm not. I still can't figure out why some choose to live in Kansas. Nebraska, in my opinion, is the longest state to drive across, not because it's the longest, it just feels like it never ends. And I'm always intrigued as I drive through these towns and cities and rural areas, like, why would you live here? And that's not a question of value. That is just a reality of we all have different spaces and places that resonate with us. Maybe some of us are just stuck because it's all we know. And to venture into another space is just too much for you right now. And that makes sense on a lot of levels. You know, today's talk is titled Cities. And we're in week five of the series, Strong Faith, Contagious Hope, Enduring Love. This week and next week, Candace is going to do next week, we're going to talk about loving our city. It's an interesting conversation, and I understand I'm talking to a myriad of groups of people from different backgrounds and upbringings and different experiences and what faith means to you and the expression of your faith and how you live it out. But I want to lay a foundation to an area that we all can relate to. We all live 
in an area where other humans live. You can call it a town, you can call it a village, you can call it rural, or you can call it cities. But we all have this common denominator, and that is we live in areas that other people live. And if they're not right next to you, they're within a short drive. And I want to talk about this space, that this chasm that seems to exist between us and a city, or us and a town. I want to use these words interchangeably today. I want to talk about this abyss that seems to exist with people that follow Jesus and the cities they actually live in. Today, I want to close these gaps. I want to build bridges. I want to destroy paradigms and mindsets when we talk about cities. I, I want to violate your way of thinking. I, I, want to, I want to destroy any thought that you have that is not for the benefit of where we live. I want to destroy that. I want to, I want to bring into conversation today, and I know Candace will do her part next week. And it's fascinating to me that it's, 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 had the, it's not natural for people that follow Jesus to approach their city from what can I give it. It's more about what can I get from it. And it's really interesting to me. When we talk about people, it's different, but when we talk about a city, it's, it seems to be this, this dissonance. And I believe if we're listening carefully and essentially listening to Jesus or to listen to the kingdom message, we will learn that cities are really important to God. Where people dwell is really important to God. And we, we have this unique ability, and I've talked about this numerous times, to create with a sense of purpose and destiny. I know in this room, but I look around the room, and for those that I've known and getting to know and stories I'm hearing, it's, you can tell when someone is doing something in their life that has a sense of purpose, and you can also tell when someone's doing something in their life that has no purpose. Two completely different people. Same person, but two completely different people. And I think all of us in this room can resonate. There are moments in our life where what we are doing is, has a sense of destiny to it, has a sense of purpose, it has a sense of like, this is why I'm alive. And because that is innate in us, or we have the capacity to do that, it's not far to think about our cities in the same vein of thought, in the same lane of thought, that we actually can create with a sense of purpose connected to where we live, not just what we can get out of it. It's common um, in Christian circles when we talk about reaching cities, quote, uh, the first thing that most people think of is Saturday food outreaches. Or we need to stand on street corners and preach a message of some type so people will get saved. And those are all normal parts of this expression of closing gap between reaching a city. But today, I kind of want to go beyond that. Some questions I want you to ask yourself is, what if everyone knows Jesus? Does the kingdom end? Did the kingdom end with you? When you said yes to Jesus, did it end there? If it has, then I would say you only have part of the story. And then we have to ask another question. Does the kingdom exist before salvation? Because sometimes I think we think the kingdom is only after salvation. And so we think everything is moving toward get everyone saved, and then we step into the kingdom. So a question I want you to wrestle with today, is the kingdom pre-salvation? Does it exist before that? 
Uh, is there a space in our theology, if you will, or a space in our thinking and a space in our life where the kingdom actually exists before salvation is ever introduced, whether personally or to another human being? You see, one of the things that we, we often forget, there's actually four distinct chapters of our faith. And this is, this is the helpful for organization. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you want to look at the word kingdom, it actually means the king's domain. It means the way the king functions and operates, the economy of the king, the mindset of the king, the reality of the king is, is what we would call the king's domain. So when we say kingdom, we're actually talking about a reality that is much larger than just how it benefits you. So when Jesus showed up and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He's not referring to your salvation of that hand. That's a part of it, but that's not the entirety of it. And oftentimes what we've done is we've reduced our mission and purpose to just getting people saved. Some only reduce it to just get myself saved. And this is one of the issues that we have when we talk about cities is we don't actually look at our cities as an expression of what God wants to do. We just look at our cities as something that I can get out of it. And this is why a lot of people find it much easier to complain about their city, to judge their city, or to critique it. And there's a general rule, if you're going to complain about it, make sure you have a solution. If you don't have a solution, you have no business complaining about it. You see, it doesn't take much intelligence to complain. It doesn't take much heart to critique and judge. It, 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 is, it is child's play. It's childish. We're all, we're all victims of this, especially in today's age. I mean, it's cool to complain. It, it's trendy. It's, uh, it's hashtagable. I mean, anything. We just love to complain and critique and judge. And we feel like we're, we're changing the world. Yeah, you are. You're just changing it with that foundation of thought. So I want to propose to you, instead of, instead of complaining with no solution, why don't you recognize what you're complaining about? It actually means the solution's in you. You just haven't tapped into it. You drive around your city, your neighborhood, whatever, whatever this did define for you, if you drive around... Greer, you drive around Greenville, or you drive around Anderson, where, where, or you drive around North Greenville or Asheville, wherever you exist today. When you drive around and you find yourself complaining about something that you drove by, or maybe you read something in the news or heard something about some policy and that's been passed in city council, I mean, there's just a myriad of, of opportunities. And I want you to notice something, that you'll find yourself critiquing it, complaining about it. But what I want you to do is I want you to begin to ask the question, what's the solution? What can I do about it? Because you'll find that you're attracted to that thing. It's just easier to complain. It's more challenging and requires more of you to actually do something about it. If it was easier to do something about it, we wouldn't actually complain. We wouldn't actually critique. We actually wouldn't judge. And so what I, wanna, what I want to do today is I want to expand a little bit of how we look at our cities and areas that we live in. I want you to understand that you have the ability to create with a sense of purpose. 
You have the ability to create with a sense of destiny. And what I want you to do is to expand your ability to create with the idea of what can you give your city instead of what you can just only take from it. Some interesting statistics around cities. In, in the 1800, 94% of the U.S. population lived in rural areas. 94%. By the time you got to the 1900, it dropped to 60% of the U.S. population lived in cities. Today, they say it's 56% of the entire planet lives in cities. So 4.4 billion people live in cities right now. They're saying that by 2050, it's going to be 70% of the world's population will live in cities. Some of you, that's terrifying, and I understand that, Eli. That's why I'm buying land, that's why I'm homesteading, and that's why I'm doing all the things. But the, the point I'm wanting to make today is that humanity is moving more and more towards cities. You might ask, what caused that shift? The biggest shift is when we move from an agricultural-based society and we move to an industrial-based society. And then as technology came along, the ability to erect tall buildings so population can go up, not just sprawl. And then you throw in the elevator. That just made these tall buildings more accessible and easy. So there are some technological advancements that have contributed to this. But what am I proposing today? We need to ask the question, should we care about the cities we live in or just live in them? Does God actually care about the cities that we live in. You see, we have the ability to build cities. We have the ability to design cities. We have the ability to shape them. Cities are defined by the humans that actually create them and shape them. This very thing that we build, in the end, actually begins to shape you. And somewhere along the way, there are some recent opinions that, that I personally have is somewhere along the way in our, in our Christian faith, we spent more time trying to leave this earth than actually doing something about the earth we live on. We spent more time thinking about the next life or the afterlife or this place we call heaven than actually doing something about the world that we live within. Now, I understand some of you are thinking right now about heaven. Well, that's really what it's about. But what's interesting, if you study the context of heaven, and I did a talk on this a few months back called Where is Heaven? And if you haven't listened to it, just go listen to it. The idea of where is heaven has changed drastically throughout human history, specifically in the Christian faith. It went from this location in the stars to we actually don't know where it is because we, our understanding of space in the universe keeps expanding. So does that mean heaven is just outside of all that, or is it within it? And N.T. Wright comes along and he says, our understanding of heaven should be left about a geographical location. It should be about another dimension, another reality, which is what the early church embraced. This is why Jesus said, it's at hand. Now, I'm not trying to create more confusion today, but I am trying to accentuate something that we spent most of our time in our faith trying to get somewhere than actually bringing somewhere here. And when you only have two chapters of your faith that revolves around fall and redemption, then you forget where creation and restoration play into it. Did you know that our story of our faith began in a garden, but it ends up in cities? Cities have frequencies. Cities have a story. They have a sound. They, 
They're places where culture, economics, politics, and faith all intersect. And what I want you to understand is we need to move beyond placards and bumper stickers and T-shirts. We need to move beyond just stickers with fishes on them. When we talk about a city, we need to move beyond these things that have had a role to some regard, but we must expand our perspective beyond steeples and pews. Cities are places where culture is created. And what I want you to do is I want you to begin to realize what does it look like for the expression of my walk with Jesus to benefit the city that I live within? And it's, you might ask, why am I talking about that? Because I, I still run into people that don't care about the city they live in. Uh, they, they don't actually care about it. They, they, don't, they don't wake up with a sense of, like, purpose in their city. They're just kind of waking up and doing life and going to bed and repeating all over again. And I, I have a strong hunch that some of this lack of purpose in our life is because we've not connected it to the very geographical location that you actually live in. And we live in a day now where it's more about self-preservation than about giving. And we're more about protecting than it is about stepping outside. And so I want to hit this. I'm going to hit this, obviously hitting it already, but I want to continue to hit this. And I want to move into a space where, as a community of people, that we're actually not just thinking this is the end game. That you're not just thinking that my goal in life is to get to a place where I have no stress. That I have no anxiety. Uh, that I have a peaceful, comfortable life. As much as we want, long for that and want that, I want to challenge you. If you're going to move into a space where you're actually changing the landscape of a city, you'll be confronted with all of that. It will cost you something. And perhaps that's why it's a tough conversation. So today I want you to think about less about consuming where you live and giving to where you live. Instead of taking from what's built, you begin to create something that should be built. You ever go into a city and, and it doesn't resonate with you? You're like, get me out of here. And then you go into other cities and it's like, man, it just makes sense. You see, cities have stories. Cities are actually dimensional in reality. They have a past. And some cities can't shake their past. They've got horror stories of what happened in the city years ago, and they're still trying to move from that. And then we have cities that are very much in the present, writing their future. Writing their present, and then we have others that are still determining what kind of future it wants to be. I want you to look at cities as less of this, this thing stuck out there in street grids and infrastructure. I want you to look at your city as a space where it actually has a story that the world needs to hear. It actually has a frequency that will resonate with humanity. And I think one of the dynamic things about specifically the region that we live in, it's clearly being highlighted right now. And I understand some of you are, you've been here a long time and you're wrestling with what's happening to my city. It's just exploding in growth. I used to take five minutes to get somewhere. Now it's 30 minutes or 45 minutes, whatever it may be. 
But there is something about what God is doing specifically in the region that we're in, and the last thing I would want to do is just to be consumers of it. I would want it to become builders of it. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses here, and then we're going to jump to another story in the Old Testament. And I'm going to just kind of pick and choose a few passages, because to unpack the whole story would take a long time, which I don't have, and that's fine, because hopefully I will inspire you to actually go read some of these stories that we're going to touch on today. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. We're only going to read verse 31, but for those of you that are taking notes or want to go in a little bit deeper, you can read the whole chapter, but specifically from 26 to 31. But in verse 31, it says this, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So this is at the end of chapter one, and if you're unfamiliar with chapter one, it's the creation chapter. It's the, it's the chapter where God began to create. And I, and I love the language, let there be light. It's almost like light just needed permission. It was there, it just needed permission. So God actually letting free of what is longing to exist. And at the very end of that, he creates humans. And if you study the entirety of scripture, you'll actually find out that the most favorite thing God created was humans. And he says it here, so he looked at everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Years ago, um, at Bethel, we, we had painters on the stage that would paint during worship. And it was a, I'm just going to be real frank with you. It, it was an interesting relationship with me to see painting during worship. Not because of the act, it's just what actually got painted. And my preferences are definitely limited to my preferences. And this particular individual was painting this painting. And to be really honest with you, I was really embarrassed at the painting. In my opinion, it was horrible. And if you know about Bethel, we have a live streaming. And so the cameras are panning everything in the room. And I'm thinking, please do not show that painting. I'd rather no one in the world see this painting. And... And so anyway, the whole, the whole gathering goes by. I'm distracted the whole time. And at the very end of the gathering, I kind of go up to get a closer look at this painting. I'm just trying to understand what's happening here. And I'm standing there. I'm having this inner dialogue about this painting, genuinely trying to understand it. And then I look to my left, and guess who stood next to me? The artist. The person that painted the actual painting. The one that I had this incredible hour-long inner dialogue about. And I look at her and I said, oh, hi, it's good to see you. And I said, can you just let me know what you were thinking when you were painting this painting? I'm trying to understand it. I didn't say sarcastic. I said it genuinely with an interest, like help me understand what I'm looking at. And I don't remember a word she said, but I do remember the emotions that shifted while she was talking. I went from not appreciating this painting to by the end of the conversation, in some way, in love with the painting. And I remember getting in my car that night, driving back to the house. I'm like, what just happened? I went, I mean, it was such a night and day shift. It was such a, a move from one emotion to a very strong opposite emotion. And I began to realize I was looking at a painting through my own narrative, my own interpretation, my own perspective. It wasn't until I got the artist's perspective on the painting. And when I got the artist's perspective on the painting, it was then and there I realized that's the narrative I need to look at this painting with. 
And I think oftentimes with humanity, we are deciding our perspective, our views on humanity, on our experience and our narratives. Not to diminish them, not to say they aren't real, but it's not the narrative that you look at humanity first through. And the narrative is this. God said it was very good. Now, that's Genesis 1. Once you get to Genesis 3, the conversation takes on another layer of complexity. But today, what I want you to understand is you must have God's narrative on humanity when you start moving into benefiting a city. In fact, I find myself telling people, if you don't have God's narrative on humanity, stop trying to reach humanity. Because you will communicate through a lens and a message that is actually destructive It actually decays the soul of a human being instead of communicating God's narrative on humanity. If humanity wasn't worth saving, the cross would have never happened. If humanity had no value, Jesus would have not gone through what he went through. That's the narrative that I want to encourage each of us to live with. And anytime you find yourself With the Genesis 3 narrative, do whatever you can to get back to a Genesis 1 narrative. If you have your Bible, I want you to now go to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to spend a few minutes in here before we close today. The book of Nehemiah. As you're turning there, for those of you that are unfamiliar with this book, it's one of the most coolest stories in Scripture. It's a great story on so many levels. If you are a leader and you want to grow as a leader, this is the book you should spend time in. If you are a person that just loved incredible stories and narratives and nuance and complexity, this is one of the top stories you can go to. But today, I want to focus on a couple aspects that take place. The backdrop of Nehemiah is this, is that Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the nation and the people of Judah, it is the main epicenter for the nation of Judah. It had been destroyed The Jews have been in exile for, I believe, just about 70 years, and now they're being released. And so now they're coming out of captivity, out of uh, of exile, and then they find out that their city had absolutely been destroyed. And off in the distance, we're going to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We'll stop right there. Nehemiah at the time was actually working for a pagan king. He was a servant, and one of his main tasks was to taste the wine before the king drank it. That's a good job to have, by the way, except you could die, but you get to taste some really good wine. Imagine waking up that morning saying, honey, I might see you tonight, but in the meantime, I'm going to have some great, great wine. And that was this man's job. He would taste it to make sure it wasn't poisoned or wasn't spiked in the wrong way. That way the king could enjoy his meal. And this was his job. So Nehemiah was close to the king, was in the inner court of the king. And he gets word that Jerusalem had been destroyed. And I love this verse. because Nehemiah said, when I heard of it, I wept. Now, this is my story, my narrative on this. I have a feeling that heaven was looking for someone that cared. I actually believe heaven was looking for someone on earth that actually cared about Jerusalem. And I believe as news spread across the land, 
God hears this man weeping over his city. And I think he looked at Michael and Gabriel, his archangels, and said, I think we found our guy. He actually cared about this city that's been destroyed. Now, do they require an emotional response? Do you need to weep over your city? Perhaps not, but it should matter deeply to you. And some of you may need to leave this place today and say, God, I actually want to care about where I live. I don't want to just do this normal life. I actually want to carry your heart for my city. And if that's too big for you, then go, my neighborhood. If that's too big for you, my place of work. Just pick some realm in humanity and ask God to give you a heart for it where you actually care about it because something in you will come alive that you don't even know exists in you. The ability to create with a sense of purpose, with a sense of destiny, to create a story for a generation that's not alive yet will come out of you. If you want to do something meaningful today, it's to actually weep over city because from that place, I believe God says, I found my person. I found someone that I can use to actually rebuild a city. So let's go to verse five. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Let's stop right there. The rest of chapter one is actually this moment of repentance from Nehemiah. He turns to God, and I love that. He hears news of the city, and then he goes straight to God with it. One of, the, one of the things I want to encourage us today as a community of people and as an individual, when you start to care about whether it's your place of work, your neighborhood, or your city, you will begin to feel things and be aware of things that have always been there. You have just opened yourself up to them. And it's in that place that Nehemiah goes to God. And in this place of going to God, he begins to pray and he begins to repent and ask for forgiveness for what's taken place. And one of the dynamics that we have is we have to move from an us and them paradigm to a we paradigm. Whenever you put yourself in an us and them paradigm, you will always put yourself as the superior person in the conversation. You see, Christianity was never meant to make you superior. Your following Jesus was never meant to make you superior to every other human being. And somehow the expression of our faith makes us feel superior to all of humanity. When you say yes to Jesus, it actually enables you to serve humanity in ways you couldn't serve before. So if you are walking around your city with some air of superiority... If you're walking around your neighborhood with some sense, I've got it going on and no one else does, it will come out in your interactions. It will come out in how you do business and how you do life. It will just leak from you. As hard as you try to suppress it, it will always come out. So I want to I wanna reframe our faith a little bit today. And that is actually designed to enable us to love and to serve in ways we could not before. Instead of it being a realm of superiority, religion will always lead you to a place of superiority. This is why the Pharisees and Sadducees throughout the gospel kept bringing all these problems to Jesus because they thought they were morally superior to everyone else. 
So I want to challenge you. Your following Jesus is not meant to make you feel more superior to every other human being. It actually simply enables you to love and serve humanity in ways you were not able to before. So turning to God and saying, God, help me do this. Now, something really interesting happened. We're going to skip over a little bit, but let's go to chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 1 is largely Nehemiah weep, become aware of Jerusalem being destroyed, and then he prays and spends time with God. And then in chapter 2, the page turned, literally, and it said, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now, the surrounding verses around this is the king saw Nehemiah and said, what's wrong? You look sad. And Nehemiah, and to be sad in front of the king was a risky, it's a risky space to be. And Nehemiah says, how can I not be sad because my city had been destroyed? And then verse 5, he says, will you send me to go rebuild the city of my fathers? And the king asked him and says, what do you need in order to do it and how long will it take? But that's another conversation. What I want to do now is I want you to understand that Nehemiah's vocation was actually not tied to his destiny. What I want you to understand, and this is the challenge I think a lot of people come, in, come into when they come into their faith and you're working at X business or you own a business or you, this is how you make your living or your livelihood. And, and we somehow don't realize that that I'm not actually doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing because it, it's not evident how it's advanced in the kingdom. I want you to understand something. What you're doing today will play a part in the things that you long to do in your future. Nothing actually goes to waste in your life. And Nehemiah was trained in the court of a king. Because if you read the rest of chapter 2, you begin to understand. He learned a few things about politics. He actually learned how to play the political game of nations of this day. He goes to the king and says, will you write me letters so I can go through all the land and country between here and Jerusalem? Will you give me passage, give me a passport, if you will, so I can travel? And they said, will you also write me a letter to this king so I can get wood and logs from the forest? Nehemiah understood how to play the political economical game. What's interesting is Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. Why? So he could actually set people free from Pharaoh. You see, some of you are in training right now. Are you guys with me this morning? Your jobs right now, what you give your life to that seems mundane, has no purpose, has no destiny, it's actually training you to see the kingdom come. You're learning skill sets. You're learning the nuance. This is why we don't hear Jesus from the age of 12 to 30. He was learning culture in that season. And by the time he turned 30, everything changed. So what I want to tell you, right what you're doing right now may not be the very thing that you think you do the rest of your life to change cities, but I guarantee you nothing will go to waste in what you learn in this season. Okay, I'm going to read a few more things here. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 13. I'm going to end on this, and this is a little bit of an abrupt end because the story is so much larger, larger than this. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. 
And then if you go to verse 13, you'll look at this line. It said, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. Having a heart for a city is one thing. The next thing is, can you assess what the city needs? And I want to challenge you, as we're driving around our neighborhoods, our workplaces, look for where the city needs rebuilding. Look for the places in your workplace that actually need shored up. And when you read chapter 3 and the rest of the book, you'll find that Nehemiah employs a bunch of people to rebuild a city that had been completely destroyed. He said, this part of the wall is your responsibility. This part of the wall is your responsibility. These gates, I want you and your family and friends to install these gates with bolts and bars. And I want you guys to rebuild this gate. And he began to observe. He spent three days observing the state of the city. And I love that because he doesn't just complain about it. He actually assesses what needs to be done. So if we're driving around our cities, I want you to look around and say, what needs to be built and done here? Where are the breaches in the wall where humanity is experiencing life they're not most meant to be experienced? Where is our culture broken? What's this social economic spectrum that we're seeing create more and more division in our day? And begin to seek the Lord on how to rebuild cities. If it's not beautiful, it's not the end. Heard that phrase recently from a, a gal that came to our preacher's event. If it's not beautiful, it's not the end. Some of you are designed to create economies. Some of you are designed to create services. Some of you are designed to get into the policy making of cities. Some of you are meant to just simply create beauty everywhere you go. Each and every one of us has a role in cities. And I want to challenge you, studio, we don't just exist to take from where we live. We actually exist to bring value and benefit to everyone that we do life with. Why don't you, why don't you stand? Thanks for listening to today's talk. If you're interested in learning more about Studio here in Greenville, you can go check out our website, studiogreenville.com, and you can give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is studio.greenville. Have a great week.